Hey friends, I love a good story, especially when it's a God story. I love to hear how God takes ordinary women and does extraordinary things in, for, and through them. I'm your host, Jody Caracosta, ministry leader at Somebody Cares America International, author and traveler on this journey of faith, and I've got a story that will equip, inspire, and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. So welcome. I am so glad you tuned in. Have you heard of our Heard God Story podcast clubs? It's an easy way to gather together a few friends, neighbors, or colleagues to talk and encourage each other in your journey of faith. It's very simple. Listen to the same episode, download our prepared episode questions from HerGodStory.org, and then discuss over your favorite refreshments. And it's a great way to reach out to friends who don't yet know Christ. Include them in the conversation and see what God will do. Listening to an episode takes much less time than reading most books, and we think you'll have a lot of takers. So gather some friends and try it out. When you do, email us at prayer at somebodycares.org to let us know so we can be praying for you. Romans 12.2 in the NIV instructs us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing, and perfect will. I also like the New Living Translation. It says it like this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God is telling us to be very wary of what we see and hear coming from the world. Don't adopt their way of thinking, responding, and behaving. It's tough. Peer pressure, social media pressure, cultural norms all tell us to do whatever pleases us to feed our carnal nature. But God says, don't believe it. Let me transform you by renewing your mind so you think and act more like Jesus. Sydney Tuman Betts has been on that journey of transformation and knows the freedom and peace it brings. Sydney is a Christian fiction author with six books under her belt. Her first series, The People of the Book, has three books. Her current series, Phoebe's Mysteries, also has three with a fourth in the works. Sydney is also an ESL teacher, a wife, and the grateful mother of two adult children. Welcome, Sydney. Hello. Sydney, you were raised going to a Lutheran church and even went to a parochial school, but Christ was not really a central part of your family's life. Tell us a little little bit about your growing up years and what prompted you to become a Christian. Well... It's not always wonderful what prompts you to become a Christian, but I was very competitive with my sister, and I heard my mother tell my father that my sister read the Bible for half an hour a day. So I said, well, then I'm going to read the Bible for an hour a day. And that's what got me reading the Bible. Now, in the parochial school that I went to, I did, there was we did read stories about Jesus all the time. So there in school was a heavy Jesus influence. And I even felt like I could feel him with me during Bible stories. But so I started reading the Bible in my, I think I was 14. And it just, the word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It really changed me. And it brought me to the point where I wanted to give my heart to him. It convicted me and showed me that I wasn't the good person that I thought I was and that I needed a savior. Yeah. So uh, you told me that what you were, you were 
sitting in a park on a park bench reading and all of a sudden the conviction of the Holy Spirit came on you? Share a little bit about that. Well, it wasn't really sudden. It had been building up because um, once I started reading the Bible, I started to see the difference between what I thought of myself and the standards Jesus had in the Bible, you know, the way he was in the Bible. It was just very clear that I wasn't a good person I thought I was. And I came across verses like, if you're ashamed of me, you know, my father in heaven will be ashamed of you. And I definitely wouldn't have been caught dead taking a Bible to my high school or anything like that. And um, I'd been reading the Psalms and Psalm 25, which is, in my opinion, particularly um, intimate really struck me. And up to that point, I kind of looked at God as like a benign authority figure, kind of like a high school principal. Well, I didn't, that didn't register. You know, it didn't seem like anything I particularly wanted. And, but David, the way he, his relationship was with Jesus in Psalm 25, I wanted that. So I told him that hey, if, if you'll make yourself known to me the same way you did to David, you can have my whole life. And I don't know how I knew that I was born again exactly. I had read John chapter 3, but I just knew in my heart that I was born again and I was totally changed. I went home and told everybody I knew about Jesus. I didn't care about being you know, made fun of as a Christian in my, Bible, my, my high school. I would take my Bible with me. So it was, that's remarkable. I mean, you know, a a lot of people, they have someone share the gospel with them and pray with them, lead them in a sinner's prayer, but that's not the way God always works. You know, he can, he, he showed himself to you just by reading the Bible all by yourself. But you know, once you made that decision to follow Christ, you were all in pretty quickly. You got connected to a group of people who were also sold out for Jesus. Um, and that was, you know, several years that you were involved with that group, sharing your testimony, um, almost like the Jesus Revolution movie mm-hmm. that we that's been in the theaters recently. Share about that time. Well, I was this. I got saved during the summer. I gave my heart to the Lord during the summer, July eighth. Then, when the school, I didn't know any Christians. I didn't know anybody that um, I knew churchgoers, but I didn't know anyone that actually was serving Jesus or particularly wanted Jesus. So um, when I went to school that next September, I ran into my sister-in-law and she had become part of a Jesus freak group. Exactly like you said, very much like the Jesus revolution. And she invited me to it. And I was like, sure, that sounds great to me. And it was just a group of kids, most of them ex-hippies that had Um, had given their hearts to the Lord and the Lord had really done a work in their heart. And all we wanted to do was live like the early church. And that was our model. So we would have Bible studies, go out. Well, actually we'd have, we'd go out and witness and have Bible studies and bring people back to the house in order to, you know, share the Bible with them and share the gospel with them. And it grew and it flourished and it was wonderful for the first, say, four years. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, early on, that was really early on in your Christian walk, um, you were witnessing and sharing the Lord, but God was also changing your thinking and understanding of, you know, various ingrained worldly influences that we 
all are subjected to in life. Um, you know, a common belief among so many is that we can earn our way to heaven. And uh, when we accept Jesus' free gift of salvation, that mindset doesn't immediately change for everyone. Some people have that revelation right away, but some some of us struggle. Um, and we can even find that belief system perpetuated by other Christians who haven't had that revelation. You encountered that. Explain what happened and how God has renewed your mind in that area. Well, as the group continued, one man kind of took over the whole, he took it, he kind of made it into his own little kingdom, frankly. And he set up a system. The group was kind of flagging in zeal, shall we say. And so he, he thought the system to set up to encourage us was to gather us all together in a group at this school. Before that, we'd been out in all sorts of centers all over, all over the Northeast United States, including Montreal. So he gathered us together in one place and he would start grading us. I don't remember whether it was once a week, once a month, or just every so often. But he would put us in tiers that were assigned by color and everybody would vote on who was very spiritual and who wasn't very spiritual. And of course, this didn't help. You know, the, the theology of the group was that you were saved by grace, but the impression you had was then you better work like crazy in order to maintain your salvation. So, yeah, the group really strayed away from the simple truth of the gospel and oh, we really became emotionally abusive. Um, yes, you were able to eventually get away from that group. You know, a lot of people encounter various levels of manipulation from seemingly trustworthy leaders like you did. And that really shakes their faith in Christ because they equate that leader with Jesus. Um, you did get free, but you also kept your faith strong. How did, how did that happen? How did you do that? How did you manage that, Sydney? Well, I didn't really manage it. You know, God managed it for me, frankly. Um, we were taught in this, this group that if we left the group, we'd leave Jesus, that those were the two choices, stay in the group or leave Jesus. And I didn't want to leave Jesus. But the leader of the group was saying things about me that didn't match what I knew to be true in my own heart. And so it came down to really a choice about sanity, you know, that I needed to get away. I couldn't, I could either embrace his thoughts about me or I could recognize my own thoughts, you know, that I'm thinking that they're actually there. So I left the group and the first time I left, they followed me. The second, within that week, I learned of a different bus station that only went to the airports. And so I went there and my parents flew me home and almost immediately I started going to Bible college because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to leave Jesus at all. And, you know, I had seen so many of my friends from the group leave the group and actually backslide and get into drugs and drinking and all sorts of things. Yeah. So we really have to understand our salvation and that we can't, we can't do anything to save ourselves or to earn God's grace. It is all grace from start to finish. We get saved by grace. We are maintained by grace <laughs> and um, we need to offer that grace to others. Now, it doesn't mean that we just go ahead and sin 
you know, wherever we want. I mean, God says for, you know, I mean, uh, Paul says in the scriptures, let it, you know, let it not be, don't do that. Um, but even though you left that group, Sydney, being in that environment for a while had reinforced some earlier learned patterns of superiority, so to say, let's say, how did that continue to affect you later? And what did God do to renew your thinking in that area as well? Before I answer that question, I just want to make a comment on what you just said. And that's that a lot of times the thinking is to put the cart before the horse. Um, Yes, you do any tree. Like if you plant an apple tree, it grows and you know it's an apple tree because it bears apples. If it is an apple tree, it bears apples. It doesn't matter if you took apples and hung them all over a holly bush. It still would not be an apple tree. It's a natural process. So the, the fruit comes the fruit comes as evidence, but the fruit doesn't make you the apple tree in this case. Um, yes, I was raised in a family by a narcissistic parent. And I didn't realize she was she was a pathological narcissist, which we didn't realize at the time. We just thought she was very problematic. It took, oh, until I was in my 50s that I realized that she was actually a narcissist, that she fit all the indexes of a, indices of a narcissist. And if any of your audience knows about narcissism, the, the formula is you adore, you worship and adore me, and I'll treat you like gold. You start setting boundaries or you don't worship and adore me. You have conflict and I treat you like dirt. And any kind of conflict or friction, the narcissist, they're unable to see their own guilt and their own fault. Some people think they're psychopaths. And so they, in turn, put it on you. If you have a problem with a narcissist, you're the problem. And of course, that just reinforces the idea that you have to earn God's love. Yeah, so you started feeling um, even a little bit of sense of superiority when your mom would give you that those accolades. Of course, that every child every child needs and every child wants. That's there's no sin in that. I mean, that's how God designed us and created us. But in your situation, there were unhealthy requirements. Um, related to that. And that started... And the target always moved. Yeah. And that started feeding in you an idea that maybe you were above other people um, or that you could judge other people by, I don't know, whatever indices were were there in your mind at the time. Um, the experience you had in the Jesus group, uh, that had reinforced the tier, you know, the tier levels so you were dealing with this throughout your adult life. I mean, you're going through your life. You're, you know, going to Bible college. You're starting to teach. Um, but you were dealing with this issue of superiority. So I didn't even realize I had the issue. Yeah. So how did God reveal that to you? And, and how did he, I mean, we're going to jump around a little bit in your story. Uh, it's not going to go exactly timeline related, but how did God eventually reveal that to you and deal with it, renew your thinking in that way? Well, after I'd gotten married, I, there were a pile of stressors in my life at the time. 
And I would not have said, if, if you had come and asked me, do you think of yourself as superior? I'd say, oh, no. If anything, I think of myself as inferior. And this is very typical of a narcissist and their children, that they have the dual tracks of they've been raised by the narcissist who thinks they're superior, but is hiding an inferiority. And um, so we had, I had those dual tracks going. I always had to be perfect. It was ingrained in me that I had to be perfect. It was a standard I couldn't meet, whether it was in raising my daughter, being a good wife, I just being active in our church. Um, the standard was either you're perfect or you stink. You know, there's no in-between whatsoever. And it caused me to have start having anxiety attacks. And God really broke me down. I, I am so thankful, frankly, that God used that period of my life. I couldn't, there was a week I went without sleep. I ended up having to go on anxiety meds just to level out. And God used that period of my life to totally destroy the construct that I was superior to anyone. Because, you know, when you can't even function, you certainly don't view yourself as superior to other people. And it made the gospel more meaningfully meaningful to me. I started to identify more with, you know, how Jesus said, he was forgiven much, loved much. That was me. So, or not, I misquoted that. He who is forgiven much loves much. I started recognizing my own um, total need for salvation. Before that, you know, obviously when I came to know Jesus, I repented. And during the whole group and up to that time, Bible college certainly um, was a Christian and didn't said the right things. And I'm not saying I wasn't genuine, but I just had this deep-rooted superiority that God had to root out of me. There, um, It's at the heart of legalism, really. One of the ways a narcissist trains her children, by example, is to compare yourself to others. And when you're comparing yourself to others, you're no matter what the index is, even if it's a spiritual index, like I'm superior spiritually, I'm more committed to Jesus, I'm more zealous for the Lord, whatever. Um, there's nothing wrong in recognizing that other people have a sin area in their life, but to then take it and turn it where Yes, they have a sin area that I don't have, so I'm better. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump to make that bridge, you know, between the one and the other. And I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Bible talks constantly about us staying humble. And mm -hmm. I think it's in the epistles, you know, Paul is talking about recognizing other people's sin, but it says there by the grace of God, go I, and this is Paul speaking. Amen. This is Paul, you know, who, I mean, if we're ranking Christians, we think Paul is yes. way up there, right? Uh, Absolutely. And he's saying there by the grace of God, go I, I could be yes. in that same situation in the blink of an eye. If it wasn't for God's yes. grace. Yeah. So Sydney, you did go to college. You've talked about that. You got a teaching degree and you began teaching first grade at a Christian school in Oklahoma, but you had a real desire to go back to school and become a reading specialist because you saw there were some students who just really needed some extra help in that area. So 
That led you to CBN University, which is now Regent University. That's where uh, you and I met, actually. Um, but at that point, you're in your late 20s, and you were starting to despair that you might not get married, um, as a lot of women struggle with that if they have a desire to get married. Um, but at school, God also introduced you to the man who would become your husband. And this is a fun story. So share brief, briefly about your courtship and how you knew Mike was God's choice for you. Oh, boy. Well, that, it took a little while. <laughs> he apparently was attracted to me and I had no clue about it. And he, if you asked him, he'd say that he thought I was taken. I don't know why he thought I was taken, but he did. And so he didn't want to be um, seeking another man's wife or another man's girlfriend. So we would be, CBM was very friendly. Everybody was very friendly to each other. We would be in a long, empty hallway all by ourselves. He was coming towards me. I was going towards him. And instead of acknowledging me and saying hello, he would suddenly become fascinated with the doorknobs on the doors. <laughs> Anything to avoid eye contact or acknowledging that I even existed in the room. And that happened several times. Frankly, I thought, what's with this guy? Does he think he's God's gift to women that if he is friendly to me that I'm going to glom onto him and, you know, think there's a relationship? And Many of my and just for just for our listeners, Mike was very outgoing and very very friendly, just naturally. I mean, in no inappropriate way at all. He's just that's just his bubbly personality. So, except to me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is what got my attention. I had all sorts of friends who liked him, and he was the manager of the circulation desk. So when I was in the library, I'd see him talking to all these people that I really liked, and they really liked him, and he really liked them, and I thought what's with this guy? Why does this guy dislike me so much? Then we had, I was in the school of education and counseling. He was in the school of communications and they were very separate from each other. But we had a mutual friend that worked. She was in the school of education and counseling. She worked at the, the uh, circulation desk, just like Michael did. And she heard him say, that's the kind of Christian girl I want to marry when I was up there one time and walked away. So she, of course, came to me and asked me if I was dating anyone. And I told her I was not, that there was someone I was interested in, but that, no, we were not dating. And she told me someone there at the circulation desk was interested in me. And I thought, oh, no, because I was sure, I was convinced it was this new guy who was very friendly to me. And I always had a hard time hurting people's feelings. So I said, who? And told her that. And she said, Mike Betts. And I thought, he doesn't even like me. How can that be? That's impossible. And he's the only guy there I would have dated had he showed me any interest. So she went and told him, which was funny because I was always really too proud to be that little girl in school that said, Susie, can you tell Johnny I like him? You know, I was too proud and too afraid of being hurt, too afraid the answer would be no. Um, so she did tell him, and he was working on his thesis. He called me one day and spent about half an hour telling me about 18 times how much he needed a salad. He was so nervous. <laughs> he was so cute. 
So we agreed to go to Shoney's. They had a like a lunch bar with salad and fruit and everything else. So we went there and I wore my favorite white skirt, my favorite aqua shirt that had a V-neck. Took my fruit salad and turned it upside down on my lap. Then I took my iced tea and poured it down my blouse. And he walked away from that date for some reason saying he was going to marry me. He told Amy, the girl who had told me he liked me, and he told his thesis committee chairman that he was marrying me. And, of course, she came and told me, which scared me. But he was leaving in two weeks to work for a ministry in Germany. So I thought, like all of our all of our dates from that point to when he left had to do with going away parties. I thought, I can stay put for that long, and it'll just fizzle out. Because I didn't, I was unsure. Well, we were corresponding. And I had the impression from his letters that he felt like he had a girl back home. And I didn't want to hurt him. He is a great guy. I wasn't sure whether he had a girl back home or not. So I sought the Lord. I was going on a missions trip the next morning. I sought the Lord and asked him, please just tell me what your will is with, with Michael. Because I'm unsure. I totally am unsure. And I promise I woke up the next day feeling 100% certain that he was the right man for me and 100% in love with him. How that changed happened was only God because it wasn't me at all. And it never changed since. Yeah. So you all had mostly a long distance relationship. Um, You know, and since you spent a lot of time you did not spend a lot of time together during your courtship. You really didn't have the opportunity to get to know each other's ways very well. I mean, you corresponded, you knew what was going on in their lives and maybe what your dreams are, but you know, your ordinary lifestyle, what you do, what you, you know, how you wake up in the morning, all of those things you really didn't know until after the wedding. And it was through that process that God started renewing your mind in the area of identity and worth. You know, the worldly mindset tells us our worth and identity is defined by other people. Um, So tell us how God began working in you, giving you his understanding of your identity and your worth. Well, we came from very different families. Both families were equally dysfunctional, but they were very different from each other. And our behavior patterns were very different from each other. Whereas I would shut down and withdraw if I were hurt or angry, he would he would voice it. His if he was frustrated, he would voice it, and I took that as rejection from him. You know, I read in, I mean, he the poor guy, he really couldn't make any tone of voice other than "Oh, I love you," without me reading in rejection, and I started taking my self worth from Mike. And that's not where my self-worth belongs. And it started causing friction. Um, It's a burden that I put on him that he didn't, he wasn't supposed to ever be bearing. And through that, at the same time, I started writing my first novel. And between writing my novel and praying about my relationship with my husband, God showed me that it was displaced, that my sense of self-worth was displaced. And he showed me really that, you know, Satan 
wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus said he was the liar from the beginning and is the father of lies. And I had been believing the lie that I had to earn my husband's love and that my husband might reject me if I didn't, you know, if I weren't worthy, if I weren't the perfect wife. Um, Adrian Rogers has a sermon example I'd like to share with our listeners because it really meant something to me um, to illustrate that your self-worth has to be rooted in God and that he's your creator and that you're made in the image of God and that he loves you. His word says he loves you. So why believe Satan's lies that he doesn't love you and that he didn't create you good? The sermon illustration went somewhat like this. All right, a man went into a garage sale and found an old painting sitting in the corner. It didn't look like anything terribly appealing, but he thought, oh, it's a quarter. I'll buy it. And he did. And the painting, you know, it was dirty. It had maybe had some, the rats chewed off the corners of it. There just wasn't anything about it that said, I'm a wonderful painting, buy me. But he did anyway, and when he went home, he cleaned off the signature and found out that it was a Rembrandt, which made it of inestimable worth. And that's exactly what we're like. You know, we're not, it's because it's the value of our creator who created us that gives us the worth. We're his creation. It's not because we're attractive or charming or any of the indexes that people use or smart. It's because we're God's creation. You know, that understanding of your value in Christ was really critical in the future. Um, You and your family had moved around a bit, but you were living in Florida and you were busy with church and with life. And um, after your father passed away, your mother moved across the street from you. And it caused you to look beyond the behaviors and customs common in the world in relation to difficult people. You sought God's way. Share what that was like. Well, it was difficult to have her move across the street from us. I really loved her, was very attached to her, and wanted her to move across the street. But she had a pattern, which is typical of narcissists. Narcissists are very charming, and she could be wonderful to be with. And everybody around us thought she was just so wonderful. And then she had another side when, like I said before, if you start setting boundaries. But God instructs us to honor our parents. So how do you honor a parent who's toxic? The world gives you two alternatives, or pop psychology gives you two alternatives. You can either freeze them out or you risk becoming a doormat. But Jesus offers us a third way in saying to turn the other cheek. A lot of people read that verse and they think that means becoming a doormat. It doesn't. Because my self-worth was anchored in him now, my mom lost her primary weapon against me. So she wasn't able to manipulate and hurt me as badly. Her behaviors were unchanged and they were painful, but they didn't have the power to destroy me. One day what struck me like a ton of bricks, because I always thought I had this mistaken impression that if I was kind to her, and I think we kind of cultivate this in the church, that if you're kind to this person who's unkind, 
that at least eventually they'll start becoming kind to you. That wasn't happening at all. And it was hurtful. Um, But it struck me like a ton of bricks that that's exactly what Jesus's experience was. He did nothing but love people. He treated everybody as lovingly as love can be because he is the definition of love. And yet they, you know, they killed him. They killed him. Some of the people wanted nothing to do with that love. And so they murdered him. And then it struck me that what a privilege it was to be experiencing the same kind of suffering that he did. You know, I wasn't suffering like exactly like he did. It was the same kind of mode um, of loving someone and having them reject you, whether you're loving them or not. By then I was writing my second novel and my second novel took me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, and I would like to read that for you. When they hurled insults at him, Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, that really helped me because it showed me a pattern that I didn't have to get vengeance. I didn't have to. Yes, it felt very unjust, the things she was doing, but I didn't make her have to pay for her injustice. I could just trust that to God and trust my self-worth to God and trust how everything was going to turn out to God. We don't need to return evil for evil to protect ourselves. He'll take care of us. We're simply called to seek the good of the other person in the ways that are in their best interest and walk daily in forgiveness and leave the rest to him. The one disappointment I had, and I kind of alluded to it before about it changing if I was kind to her. And of course, obviously I'm a human. I wasn't this perfect, wonderful angel, but that if I were kind to her, she would reciprocate. And my cherished wish was that she would come to know Jesus. And it didn't appear that she did. I was disappointed when I didn't see any any results. And I, lately I came across this quote by C.S. Lewis that I really like, and that's, love is never wasted, for its value does not rest on reciprocity. Then, just lately after hearing that, my, my pastor preached a sermon about the third way. He preached a sermon on this very subject. And he made me realize that I don't really know that it was wasted anyway. I don't know that she didn't come to know Jesus during those last weeks when a person's really sick and they're not speaking much. Only God knows what the true effect of me walking out in love had on her. Toward the end of her life, she did over the phone. By then, she'd gone to live with my sister because we were so horrible. Um, That's how she represented us anyway. She acknowledged in tears how much she must have hurt. According to her. Yeah, according to her. Yeah. It was a statement. It wasn't wasn't an apology exactly, but she was crying and saying, oh, you must have, I must have hurt you so much. And I did forgive her. I told her that I forgave her and admitted, yes, you did hurt me, but it doesn't matter. You know, she's forgiven. Um, and who knows how during her last weeks, all of that affected her before she died. 
she may have given her heart to the Lord. I know she went from when we were homeschooling our children, we would invite her. She lived for, with us for a while. We would invite her to read the word with us, with my children and I. And she didn't want to. But toward the end of her life, my sister said that she enjoyed having the Bible read to her. So that's something. Yeah. Well, when she did pass, um, she you found out that she had disinherited you. Uh, which must have been very painful, even after she said, I caused you a lot of pain. Um, because after all she'd done for you, and even her acknowledgement she had caused you pain, she had disinherited you. And God, you know, God used even that experience to give you a new perspective on money, um, which is another area that we can get so out of whack. You know, we can get so we can put our faith in money, right? We can put our faith in money and think that it's going to, it's going to be our stability. Um, but God wanted to give you a different perspective on that. So can you explain? Sure. It wasn't really surprising that she disinherited me. I, I kind of expected it. What did really hurt was her telling my daughter that she didn't consider me her daughter anymore. This of course was before she cried and, you know, told me that she was, she didn't say she was sorry, but, you know, that she must have hurt me so much. Um, I was a little surprised by my sister because my sister, who ended up getting all the inheritance, which was like in the millions, I just assumed that she would then, once it was hers, do what I always thought, what my parents, especially my father, had always expressed was his desire that we would have the money equally. And I realized, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized having come from wealthy parents, how much trust I did put in them. But she felt like she needed to be faithful to what mom's will was. She was the executrice and mom said she wanted the money to go to her and that that's what she needed to do, which is fine. I felt like it was unjust, but it doesn't really matter that I felt that way because the money was hers. So... I don't want to get ahead of myself. The one thing that really made a difference to me during my struggle with this, there were actually several things. One was a dear pastor friend of ours asked me the question that reframed everything. What's more important to you, the money or your sister? And of course, my sister was more important to me. You know, how do you measure a person's worth in terms of money? She was more important to me than the money. That was the one thing. The other thing was bringing me across it's so wonderful the way God always engineers that the things you're reading in the Bible apply to your life, it seems. He brought me across that section of the Gospels where a man comes to him and says, my brother, you know, my brother won't share the inheritance with me. And Jesus didn't even address the issue. And it made me realize that what I was saying before, that the money was my sister's. Anything, any trying to want it, even in my own heart, was coveting then because it didn't belong to me. It belonged to her. Now, my father had put money in trust, and so I had that money. And my husband and I moved to Virginia, and we bought a business. And what really showed me how my how much I trusted money despite being thought of in our family as the person who would always give it away. Um, when the bank balance started going down, 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 
I started grasping onto that money like crazy and being scared that we were going to lose our house, that we were going to lose everything. And God so kindly used that to reveal in me that root of unbelief, the unbelief that God would take care of me, that I needed the money to take care of me in our bank balance. It's not only did he prune me during that time and show that to me, this was a very tough time. Us owning the business, I didn't want to work at the business. I didn't want anything to do with it. It was my husband's dream, but it quickly became apparent that if I didn't work at the business, my husband was going to die of exhaustion (laughs) because it was hard to get labor that would work. So during that whole time, It was tough, but God used it not only to prune things out of me, but also to help. Remember I said that my husband came from a dysfunctional family. God used our failure in our business to root out things in my husband that I've been praying about for decades. And it's amazing the way that God, God does, takes the things that we think are disasters or horrible, or painful, and he uses them to set us free. And that's exactly what God did with our failure of our business. God set Michael free from things, and God set me free from things. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And even though your business failed, you didn't fail. You know, you as a couple, and you and your faith, you were stronger than ever, which... God, you know, like you said, God uses some of those things to for to forge us and forge new strength in us and give us his perspective. Because when we have the eyes of Christ, we are not easily rattled. You know, the the things of the world that start shaking and, you know, we can look beyond that and we can see God's purpose in them and through them and beyond them. Which boy, you know, right now in our nation, we all need to have that confidence that we will not be shaken. We, we have our foundation in Christ and he is the one whose plan is at work and we can have confidence in him because scripture tells us that we are hidden in Christ Jesus. So whatever's going on, we can trust in him and we need to have that perspective, which God really worked in you. Yes, absolutely. And his plan isn't for us to have wonderful lives on earth. His plan is his whole plan of the gospel from the very beginning throughout history. We're being fitted into that plan. And, um, you know, like if you read Bible characters, they had plenty of flaws and they had plenty of challenges. But God placed them in the right place and time that he wanted them to accomplish his will, his will and his work through you. And that's what our lives are for on earth. And he, of course, he gives us joy in doing it. Yeah. And I mean, certainly God's not about making our life miserable either. You have had a lot of joy and exciting adventures. And, um, you know, you were able to live in Israel for a time and you've seen a lot of the world. Um, you, and you've never lost your passion for sharing Christ and teaching others about him. In fact, one of the ways that God's enabled you to do it, you've mentioned it a few times, is writing Christian fiction, which I've read the first whole series. It's fantastic. And I'm reading some of the second series. Uh, so how did, how did you get started? Uh, tell our 
listeners what your books are about and how God used them in your life and even in the lives of others. Well, my first book, my first series, it's a trilogy, is a is historical Christian romance. And I started that because we were homeschooling and we were learning about Native Americans. It's a book about Native Americans. It goes from, in the first book, Native Americans and a white settler getting to know each other. And then it goes towards, by the time you get to the third book, it's all about the Native American tribes. Um, God used those books while I, I was homeschooling my kids. And while I was writing the books, I was having these challenges with my husband and with my self-image. And by seeking seeking what God's will was for me to write and seeking God about my own relationship, they went hand in glove, you know, and they're in the books. You can read, you know, any author ends up being autobiographical. You know, they don't mean to, biographical. They just put themselves in their books. Sure. But what's your, your second series is, is a bit of a departure. It is. It's about, it's a mystery series. It's a little lighter weight. And it's about a pastor's daughter, a young pastor's daughter, who has her main talent is just listening, that she listens to people. And through listening, she picks up clues that help her to solve murders or other crimes. So far, the first three books have been murders, but the fourth book is not going to be a murder. You know, I love uh, Hallmark Mystery series, which are light, light mysteries like that. So uh, if, if our listeners out there are like me, like in those Hallmark Mysteries great series of books to read. Um, Sydney, what do you, what do you hope our listeners take away today from your story? I hope they take away the fact that God is faithful and that he loves us so much. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about he disciplines the sons that he loves. Um, someone, I don't remember who used an illustration that we're all kind of like blocks of marble and I don't know if you know anything about sculpting. I don't know much, but I know that supposedly the sculptor looks at the block and he just sees in the block what it is that he wants, what it is he's creating. And that's kind of how God is with us. He chips away at the stuff that is not necessary, is not good. He chips away at it in order to reveal the beauty that's inside. He makes all things beautiful in his time. He's faithful. You, the other thing, which is related to it, is that you can wholly trust God's word. God's word tells you to do things that are very upside down from what the world tells you to do. They're really diametrically opposed. And through leading women's Bible studies, I've often found that when it gets to things that are really personal, all of a sudden a wall goes up with women and they're like, no, I'm not going to do that because they are so ingrained in the ways of the world. But if you take Jesus at his word and actually do what he says, it's God makes all things beautiful. You know, he he's doing that on purpose. His word works. He knows what he's doing. And he's worth trusting. He's worth following. So, Sydney, as we close, would you share about a woman in the Bible who's inspired or encouraged or taught you something? I love Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. I can definitely identify with her. I love God's word. And I love the way she sat at Jesus' feet. My gift is not cooking and cleaning and all that stuff. 
my gift is in studying the word of God and listening and disseminating it to other people. And I just love the idea of sitting at Jesus's feet and listening to him. And also she's the same Mary that realized how wonderful God is and his payment for all her sins and washed. Well, I guess that was before the crucifixion. She did this, but she still, she had some sorts of sort of internal response that she washed his feet with her hair and her tears, you know, poured the alabaster jar of perfume over him. She just loved him. And she definitely resonates with me. Amen. You know, um, I want to be like her. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Proverbs three, as we've been talking and uh, about all of the, the things we've talked about today, uh, Proverbs three, five, and six came to mind which says, it's a very familiar passage. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And sometimes we can focus on just the beginning and the end of that verse. Trust in the Lord and he will make your path straight. But we mustn't miss the middle. Lean not on your own understanding, which is often influenced by the patterns and concepts of the world, right? Instead, God invites us to submit our ways to him so he can direct our steps and renew our mind in the process. Sydney, would you take a moment and pray for our listeners? Lord Jesus, I have no idea who's going to listen to this podcast, but you do. And you dearly love every single person out there listening, whether they're, I'm assuming mostly they're women, maybe there's a man or two listening to it. But God, you love them so dearly. And Lord, I pray that you free them from all the chains that bind them, Lord God, that you free them from addictions, that you free them from just the ingrained patterns of this world that have been formed in us through our society, possibly through our parents, that you release us, Lord Jesus, to serve you with our whole hearts, Lord Jesus, because you are our portion. You're the reward, Lord God, and you're wonderful. In your name, amen. Thank you for tuning in. Check out our show notes at hergodstory.org for scriptures, links, and other information. Sign up there for our emails and get a free six-week downloadable devotional on women of the Bible or purchase a 12-week devotional on women of the Bible for just $12, knowing that all the proceeds will go to our widow and orphan fund. You can also give a gift to support widows and orphans as part of a growing company of women, because together we can do so much more. If God spoke to you through this episode, think about starting a podcast club. You can have friends, neighbors, or colleagues listen to it too, and then gather around your favorite refreshment to discuss what God's saying to each of you. We have suggested questions online at hergodstory.org under our podcast club section to help you. And now, dear friends, I bless you from Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 20. May God, the glorious Father of Jesus Christ, give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you will grow in your knowledge of God. May your heart be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given you, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And may you understand the incredible greatness of God's power for you, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.